recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, September 27th, 2013. Tonight we will begin our presentation of Acts chapter 15, and we won't finish it. We'll get about halfway through. I have recently witnessed an email exchange in which a certain so-called pastor says to one of our brethren, and where is the law that says, thou shalt not use an alias? Here is my answer. The Gibeonites were a portion of the accursed Canaanites who came to Joshua and the children of Israel as they were undergoing the conquest of the land of Canaan. And the Gibeonites came to the Israelites under an alias, pretending to be someone whom they were not. Using this alias, they pretended to be from another place, a place which was supposedly far away from the land of Canaan. They agreed with the children of Israel concerning all of the mighty works which Yahweh their God had done for them, and they admitted his great favor for them. As the Apostle James tells us, the devils also believe that there is one God, and they tremble. With this pretense, the Gibeonites deceived the children of Israel into making a league with them, the Israelites promising never to harm them. The Israelites did not inquire of Yahweh their God before making such a league, but they swore an oath to these men anyway. When they later found out the truth of the matter, when the mask was off, and the true identity of these men from Gibeon had been exposed, the children of Israel upheld the notion that they had to keep their agreement, which was to their own detriment. These Gibeonites were Hivites of the town of Gibeon, Joshua 9:7, And the Hivites, not being destroyed as Yahweh had commanded, Later, the Gibeonites are a part of those who were left to punish the children of Israel. Judges 3.3, the Hivites. Today, we have a man pretending to be a teacher of Christian identity, and he comes to us under an alias, just like the Gibeonites. And just like the Gibeonites, he pretends to be from a faraway place, namely Bavaria, when he is really a Jew from Chicago. And now this man teaches that Canaanites can be blessed by God and shall survive in the last days. He has undertaken a large effort, which he entitles crumbs, in order to somehow prove his assumption. An effort to have the children of Israel once again accept the Canaanites among them. Just like the Gibeonites, it is the survival of the accursed Canaanite people that this man seeks. Now that this man's alias is discovered and his true nature is revealed, he's crying foul and pretending to be an injured party. The singular lesson from Scripture is that we should not accept anyone under an alias. An alias is a lie, and no lie is the truth. But more importantly, The children of Israel are admonished by the Apostle John, where in his epistle he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits 
whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Of course, the apostles talking about embodied spirits, not disembodied spirits. Therefore, Christians not only have a right, but they have an obligation to know from exactly where their teachings are coming. There may not be a law against using an alias, but we sure as hell should not accept those who do. The singular example in Scripture as to why the children of Israel should not accept anyone under an alias is that of the Gibeonites in Joshua chapter 9. With this, we will commence with the book of Acts, chapter 15. The end of Acts, chapter 14, leaves us with Paul and Barnabas in Antioch in Syria after having returned from their first Christian missionary journey in Anatolia. On their first journey, they did not venture far, traveling through the island of Cyprus and the Anatolian provinces of Pamphylia, Pisidia, and Lycaonia. Western and central Anatolia at this time was ruled by Romans, predominantly settled by Greeks, and also contained populations of Phrygians, Phoenicians, Lydians, Galatians, and other white, Adamic, but not Greek peoples. Luke, the author of Acts, is said by the earliest Christian writers to have been a Greek from Antioch, which certainly seems to be true. Therefore, he may have been with Paul on his first missionary journey, since the point of departure for that journey was Antioch. However, it cannot be told from the accounts provided. It is even more likely, however, that Luke was an actual eyewitness to the events described here in Acts chapter 15. Since with all certainty, Luke is in the company of Paul in Acts chapter 16, where he writes in the first person in Acts 16.10, using the pronoun we, or at least its Greek equivalent. That account describes Paul's second missionary journey, for which Antioch was the point of departure once again. With this, Acts 15, verse 1. And some had come down from Judea, teaching the brethren that if you would not be circumcised in the custom of Moses, you were not able to be saved. The Codex Beze has that if you would not be circumcised and walk in the customs of Moses, making the admonition to keep the Mosaic Code, which is given by these men, even more complete. While this is certainly an interpolation on the part of that manuscript here, in verse 5, the fullness of the demand is manifest in all of the manuscripts. Acts chapter 15 is further evidence that the book of Acts records a period of religious transition, which is evident in the confessions of the apostles themselves, and the understanding of these early Christians that their salvation was to be found in Christ, and not by adhering to the rituals, or the works, as they are called, of the Old Testament law. Yet the apostles also understood that Christians 
should strive to keep the law if indeed they loved Christ. And we shall also see that here, as the balance of this chapter of Acts is presented, it is difficult to convince those beholden to the law, those who seek their justification by keeping the law, that Israelites, and only Israelites can be Christians under their new covenant, it's difficult to convince those beholden to the law that Israelites are justified in Christ. And while they should seek to be obedient to his commandments, they shall be judged by his mercy and not by the law. Therefore, also, because Christ has mercy on us all, we should have mercy towards our brethren who transgress and seek to correct rather than to condemn them. Acts 15.2 Then upon their coming, no little discord and debate by Paul and Barnabas against them. They ordered Paul and Barnabas and some of the others among them to go up to Jerusalem to the ambassadors and elders concerning this debate. The Codex Laudianus wants the words translated and debate in the first clause of the verse. While we are never informed of exactly who these men were who came to Antioch from Jerusalem, if we follow the context of the balance of the account as it is presented here by Luke, it is evident that neither Peter nor James could have been among them. Yet, whoever they were, they appear to have had some authority among those within the Christian assembly. Where the King James Version has it, that they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain of them should go up to Jerusalem, the Greek verb is tasso. And according to Liddell and Scott, it primarily means to arrange, but also to appoint, to ordain, to order, or to prescribe. And therefore here, in the proper tense, it is ordered. They ordered these men. They didn't determine. As we have seen elsewhere, the Christian assemblies in Judea also must have operated on the system of presbyters and ministers or elders and servants to whom the members of the assembly submitted themselves. That is also evident in Acts chapter 6, where upon there being a dispute, a dispute over the distribution of food to people in the community, the apostles had the people of the assembly elect men who would oversee the administration of those things. And the people submitted themselves to those men once they were elected. Here we see a sharp division in the beliefs among, the, among various of the earliest Christian teachers. And while Paul and Barnabas must have deferred to these men from Jerusalem in worldly matters, they did not defer to them in scriptural matters. Therefore, Paul and Barnabas could disagree with the men on matters of faith, but not disagree with their demands to bring it before the apostles in Jerusalem. Paul concedes to this decision as well, that he would submit himself to the decision of the apostles thereby recognizing them as the proper arbiters of these matters. If Paul had not been so willing, then there would not have been need for him to go to Jerusalem to argue his case before them. However, the strife in Antioch would not have ceased, 
So Paul's concession was for the benefit of the community as a whole. That his argument prevailed with the apostles shows that Paul's position had the favor of God. An examination of the prophets would reveal that Paul's position was certainly grounded in Scripture, while those who favored the rituals were traditionalists who preferred the views of the Pharisees. Verse 3. So then, being sent forth by the assembly, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, relating the turning of the nations and brought about great joy among all the brethren. As we have seen earlier in Acts, namely concerning Samaria in Acts chapter 8, by this time there must have been a great number of Judean Christians as opposed to so-called Gentile Christians. There must have been a great number of Judean Christians who were spread throughout much of Palestine. That's what the account is telling us here. This again shows that the proper way to look at the division in the New Testament over Christianity is not between Jew and Gentile. The proper way to look at that division is between Israelites, according to the flesh, and those who called themselves Israelites, but who were actually Edomite converts, which is how Paul himself explained this division in Romans chapter 9. These Judean Christians, true Israelites indeed, were gleeful that the nations had received the gospel truth. While time and again the scripture shows that those Judeans who rejected Christ were envious and guarded their own position, hating the idea that the uncircumcised should be brought to the truth in Christ. This is clearly seen where Paul, in his last ditch attempt to reach the people of Jerusalem, while summarizing his own Christian revelation, is recorded as having said to them in Acts chapter 20, and I quote from verse 20, And when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he, meaning Christ, said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the nations." And they gave him audience, meaning the people of Jerusalem, listen to Paul, up to this word, and then lifted their voices once they heard that Paul was going to bring the word of the gospel to the nations outside Judea. They lifted their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. The Edomite Jew would want to kill anyone who accepts Christian truth, as recorded in the book of Acts. And history proves as much unto this very day. Here, in Acts chapter 15, verse 3, this word in the Christogenian New Testament, turning, relating the turning of the nations. This word turning, turning is the Greek word epistrophe, Strong's number 1995. And it is rendered as conversion in the King James Version, a word which I do my best to, to, to avoid in the Christogenian New Testament. 
Liddell and Scott define the word epistrophe primarily as a turning about, a turning as in a turning of affairs, a reaction, attention paid to a person or thing, turning towards a person or thing, right? Having regard for a person or thing. The literal translation of the word reflects the true purpose of the gospel message, which was to turn the children of Israel back to Yahweh their God. The word conversion is too often used to, to imply a change in somebody or something from what it is into somebody or somebody different. And in reference to Scripture, it is misconstrued to mean that so-called Gentiles who were not Israelites can somehow be converted into spiritual Israelites. That's how the jail Christians understand the word, which is not at all the context of Scripture. Instead, it's a perversion of Scripture. The word is a turning, the turning of the nations back to Yahweh their God. Such nuances in translation may seem trivial, but they make a great difference in understanding the error of universalism compared to the truth of covenant theology. While we use the word conversion, and I'll use it often tonight, while we use the word conversion and related words in our discourses concerning the scripture, even in its very presentation, we would always define that word conversion, as it applies to scripture, as the returning of Israelites to Yahweh their God through Christ. Some of the many scriptures which demonstrate that the purpose of the gospel was to turn Israel back to Yahweh their God. Isaiah 31.6 Turn ye unto him from whom the children of Israel have deeply revolted. For in that day every man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold which your own hands have made unto you for a sin. Isaiah 59, verse 20. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith Yahweh. Hosea, chapter 14, verse 1. O Israel, return unto Yahweh thy God, for thou hast fallen away by thine iniquity, Take with you words, and turn to Yahweh. Say unto him, Take away all iniquity, and receive us graciously. So will we, so will we render the calves of our lips. From Jeremiah chapter 3, long after the, deportion, the, the, the Assyrian deportations of the children of Israel, at least a hundred years after, Turn, O backsliding children, saith Yahweh, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Acts chapter 15, verse 4. And arriving in Jerusalem, they were received by the assembly and the ambassadors and the elders, 
they, meaning Paul and Barnabas and their company, and reported as much as Yahweh had done with them. Some manuscripts say that they were greatly received. The word with in the final clause is the Greek word meta, M-E-T-A. 33.26, and the translation is literal. The apostles clearly saw themselves as tools in the hands of Yahweh their God, which he employed to fulfill his will in the world. Verse 5. Then there arose some who were persuaded by the sect of the Pharisees, saying that it is necessary to circumcise them and to instruct them to keep the law of Moses. Of course, the Pharisees were legalists. They were protecting their own position in this newfound, that, that this newly instituted creed reflecting the new covenant in Christ. Here there were Judean Christians who had fallen under their influence in spite of the fact that they were with the apostles themselves. These wanted Paul and Barnabas to compel the pagans who came to Christianity to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. Here we shall see that the apostles rejected that notion. However, we shall also see, both later in this chapter and from Acts chapter 21, and this will be discussed next week, that the Judean Christians themselves did not break completely free of the influence of the Pharisees. And they themselves thought that they should maintain both the rite of circumcision and the rituals of the law. That becomes manifest in Acts chapter 21. It will be discussed here next week in relation to James's discourse later in this chapter. From Matthew chapter 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the, waiter, the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought you to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Christ himself also quoted from Hosea 6.6, 6, as it is recorded in the Gospels. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Keeping the law of Moses means continuing to practice the rituals. Acts 15.6 Then the ambassadors and the elders gathered together to see concerning this account. The Codex Laudianus has to debate. And there being much debate, Peter arising said to them, Men, brethren, you know that from the first day Yahweh has chosen among you through my mouth for the nations to hear the account of the good message and to believe. The third century papyrus, this is important because this is the, um, the oldest surviving record of the book of Acts. The third century papyrus, P45, inserts a lengthy segment after the word for debate in verse 7. It's highly fragmented. 
and the editors of the Novum Testamentum Grecae conjectured parts of it. I'm not going to read it here because it still seems to be missing some words, and therefore it does not entirely make sense. I have a translation. It will be in my notes, which will be included with the podcast to this program. The good message, or the gospel, which the nations were to believe, is spelled out in the prophets, such as Isaiah 53, which tells us that Christ was to suffer on behalf of the sins of the children of Israel. Christ was to suffer only on behalf of the sins of the children of Israel, for no other reason. And through that suffering, Yahweh would be reconciled to Israel under a new covenant as promised. It's promised in Isaiah and Ezekiel. It's promised explicitly in Jeremiah chapter 31. Being joined to those very same people whom he had once put away as promised in Hosea chapters 1 and 2. The apostles must have understood that this was the nature of the pronouncement of the gospel of Christ to the nations. The evidence is in their epistles. When Peter wrote his first epistle, he was explicitly addressing a chosen race, where he also directly quotes a promise of reconciliation, which Yahweh made to dispersed Israel in Hosea chapter 1. Likewise, James wrote his epistle to the twelve tribes scattered abroad, addressing his brethren, as he called them, James 1, verse 2, and explicitly considering Israel to be reckoned by tribes. A supposed spiritual Israel could not be reckoned by tribes. Tribes can only be extended genetic families. Never did the apostles reckon the covenants and promises of God in Christ for anyone but the tribes, the literal genetic children of Israel, the chosen generation or chosen race. 1 Peter chapter 2. The chosen race called by Yahweh God. Verse 8. And Yahweh, who knows the heart, has accredited them to give the Holy Spirit just as also to us. Peter is referring to his conversion of the household of the Roman centurion Cornelius, and their having received the Holy Spirit, which is recorded in Acts chapter 10. Peter is also asserting that his conversion of the household of Cornelius to Christianity marked the first time that non-Judeans returned to Christ, referring only to those not first practicing the religion of Judea, since there were indeed Judean converts at Antioch, along with the Judean Christians as early as Acts chapter 6. This event here in Acts chapter 15 According to Paul's epistle to the Galatians, is 14 years after Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, if we count the times which he reckons inclusively, and it can indeed be determined that we must do so. 
However, it is three years from Paul's conversion to his first visit with the apostles in Jerusalem, and both of those events are recorded in Acts chapter 9. Paul gives us these dates in Galatians chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, and in Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. Herod Agrippa died in 44 AD, and his death is recorded in Acts chapter 12. If it is accepted that Paul is converted by the second year of Christianity, or before the end of 34 AD, and there is reason for accepting that, that his first visit with the apostles was about 36 AD, and now it is about 47 AD. And this is in keeping with the dating of the so-called Edict of Claudius, expelling all Judeans from Rome, which is said to have been issued in 49 AD, which is mentioned in Acts 18, verse 2. By this we also see that it is as many as 11 years, but certainly no longer than that, from Peter's appearance at the home of Cornelius to the time of this event in Acts chapter 15. Verse 9. And distinguishing nothing between both us and them, by faith he cleanses their hearts. All that the members of the household of Cornelius did before they received the Holy Spirit was to accept the gospel of Christ. And here Peter fully recognizes that fact, virtually admitting all that is necessary for Christians to do. Of course, once we accept the gospel of Christ, we should return, seek to return to obedience in Christ. That's a whole different story. This discounts the necessity of any and all rituals in connection with salvation including the ritual of water baptism. For this reason, water baptism was never mentioned again in the book of Acts after Peter's description of the conversion of Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 11. To uphold water baptism as a proper Christian ritual, many sects refer to Acts chapter 2. They disregard the obvious transitional process in the religion of the apostles, which is outlined throughout the entire book of Acts, failing to consider the basis of their faith upon a complete revelation of Scripture. Verse 10. Therefore, now, why tempt Yahweh to place a yoke upon the necks of the students which neither our fathers nor us had been able to bear. Peter's talking about the law, the Mosaic law. In ancient times, the children of Israel, Israel, I'm sorry, in ancient times, the children of Israel clearly could not keep the law or its rituals. And sinning, They were cast out from the presence of Yahweh. Here Peter admits 
that neither could his own fellow Judeans dare to live under the law and all of its injunctions and rituals, especially since the Pharisees piled a lot of garbage on top of that, the traditions of the elders, not necessarily the Israelite elders. For this, Peter witnessed Christ as he consistently upbraided the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. From 1 Peter, chapter 1, we see that the apostle wrote to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, speaking about the children of Israel, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of of Yahshua Christ. Grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. And in verse 9 of that same chapter, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. The prophets only wrote of these things in reference to the chosen race as Peter calls them in the second chapter of that epistle, the children of Israel. Grace is a matter of prophecy relating to the forgiving of sin for those who were under the law, as Jeremiah chapter 31 explains in its second verse. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword, those who were spared death in the Assyrian captivities, The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. We cannot imagine, in relation to the Gospels, that the apostles ever used this word grace outside of the context of the promises made by Yahweh God to Israel, as they are recorded in Jeremiah chapter 31. Verse 11, but through the favor or grace of our prince, Yahshua Christ, we trust to be saved by the same manner as they also. The better manuscripts only say Prince Yahshua. The codices Ephraim, Siri, and Beze have Christ. Here, Peter expresses the attitude that Judean Christians should be saved by faith in the same manner which he attributes to, for salvation to the nations, the nations being dispersed Israel, telling us in verse 9 that God makes no distinction, and here saying, we, meaning the Judeans, trust to be saved by the manner as they also. Saying this, Peter expresses the understanding that both the Israelites of Judea as well as the Israelites of the dispersions attain their salvation through Christ apart from the law and the rituals. 
This is the exact same understanding expressed by Paul throughout his epistles. And Paul consistently made the argument that the promise to Abraham concerning his seed was given long before the law and the prophets. That the law had no effect. The giving of the law on, at Mount Sinai had no effect on the promise to Abraham. Peter is agreeing. We shall see that the Apostle James, while he agrees with Peter concerning dispersed Israel, would keep Judean Christians under the law. And that's evident in James' own words in Acts chapter 21, and we will discuss that next week. And even, at least in some degree, James would keep Judean Christians under the rituals of the law, and we shall see that. Verse 12. Then all the multitude was silent, and they heard Barnabas and Paul relating as many signs and wonders as Yahweh had done among the nations through them. The Codex Beze has many interpolations in this chapter. One of those interpolations is at the beginning of this verse where it says that upon the consenting of the elders to that being spoken by Peter, all the multitude were silent. Barnabas and Paul accredited all of the signs and wonders that they were able to do to Yahweh their God. Yahweh God should always be honored as the source of the good gifts and talents which men possess and are able to employ for the benefit of his people. Now we shall see the words and the attitude of the Apostle James in response to these things which Peter has spoken. Verse 13. And after their silence, James responded, saying, Men, brethren, you listen to me. Now concerning verse 14, I have a parenthetical note. In reference to this following verse, the Hebrew form of Peter's given name appears in the Greek text, both here in Acts chapter 15, verse 14, and in the first verse of Peter's second epistle, that form being Simeon, Simeon, rather than Simon. Luke's use of this form here in Acts 15 which is the form that appears here in all of the extant manuscripts of Acts, is an indication that Luke witnessed this event firsthand. Otherwise, receiving a vicarious account, he may have written the Greek form Simon in reference to Peter, as he always did everywhere else he wrote, earlier in Acts and throughout his Gospel. So to me, that's an indication that Luke heard what James said, and recorded what James said. It may be circumstantial, but I believe that Luke was here. Verse 14. 
Simeon has declared just how at the first Yahweh considered to take from among the nations a people in his name. Oh, this is important. Even though on the surface, this may seem, if you don't go back and look at the Old Testament, this may seem to refer to nations other than the children of Israel. It does not. One place where this promise is explicitly found in Scripture is in Ezekiel chapter 36. And the words of the prophet address Israel over a hundred years after the Assyrian deportations from Ezekiel 36:17, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore I poured out my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land and for the idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathens or nations. It should properly say I scattered them among the nations. It could also say I scattered them into nations. And they were dispersed through the countries According to their way and according to their doings, I judged them. And when they entered unto the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said to them, These are the people of Yahweh, and are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith Yahweh God, I do this not for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations. Where you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the nations, which you were profaned in the midst of them. And the nation shall know that I am Yahweh, saith Yahweh God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations. This is, has to be what James is referring to here. For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Christ is the well of living water. John chapter 4. And a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony, heart of, the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. In reference to this last passage cited from Ezekiel, 
Paul wrote to the Christians at Corinth from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And he must be making a direct reference to this passage where he says, you, you are our letters, having been inscribed in our hearts, being known and being read by all men, being made manifest because you are Christ's letter ministered to by us, having been inscribed not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on fleshly tablets of heart. The Corinthians were also from the dispersions of the Israelites, as Paul attests to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and as their own history shows. Now there's something which, in my humble opinion, I do not think James understood, and that's the one-stick prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 37. And we will get into that in depth next week. In Ezekiel chapter 37, Yahweh had promised once more, as James professes here, that Israel would be taken from among the nations, referring to the nations in which they were dispersed. From verse 21, And say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they, be, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side, and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. I'll talk about it more deeply next week, but in Acts chapter 21, James informs Paul that the, that the people esteemed him wrong, that those zealous of the law esteemed that Paul was wrong, and in error for teaching the Judeans should no longer circumcise their children and should no longer live under the laws of Moses. And James tells Paul that he should rectify that. And then James commands, and Paul accedes to James because James is his elder. And James commands Paul to undergo a ritual cleansing in the temple. In Acts chapter 21, we see that James clearly believed that Judean Christians should keep the laws of Moses and at least some of the rituals. Why I say that James didn't understand the one-stick prophecy in Ezekiel is that Yahweh says that he would make of Judah and Israel one stick and they would have one king and they shall no longer be divided into two kingdoms. Well, if Judean Christians, if a portion of Christians are obeying the laws and the rituals, then they can't be one stick and have one king. It's just not possible when you have two sets of laws in one nation. Now, Paul disagrees with James in his epistles, but James was his elder, so Paul acceded to his desires in Acts chapter 21, and went along with what James commanded. That's my opinion 
That's why I say James, I don't think, under, really understood the one-stick prophecy. He did understand a lot of prophecy, and here it is very clear that he understood that Yahweh would gather his people from among the nations. And James agrees with that idea here. And those people are the dispersed children of Israel and nobody else. That's the prophets. Everywhere it is mentioned in Scripture, the taking of Israel from among the nations, the taking of a people for the name of God from among the nations, refers exclusively to the gathering of the dispersed Israelites who were taken into captivity in ancient times. Historically, for the most part, this gathering occurred in the migrations to Europe of the tribes from Asia between the 6th century BC and the fall of Rome, culminating with the acceptance of the gospel by these very same people, fulfilling the words of the prophets concerning the return of Israel to Yahweh their God. This is proven again by the missions of the apostles to Europe. You don't see them going to Kenya. You don't see them going to India. You don't see them going to China. In order to properly understand Scripture, whatever the apostles quote the Old Testament, we must go back and examine the passages they are referring to in their original context. This is the major difference. This is where identity Christians primarily diverge from the universalists or from the dispensationalists who insist that somehow God is dispensed with his own word in Scripture. For that reason, they arrogantly neglect God's word in the Old Testament, which the apostles themselves cited again and again. And James and Peter both appeal to quite often here in this chapter. If Yahweh God and Yahshua Christ were universalists, the apostles may have quoted from the Hindus, or from Buddha, or perhaps from Philo, rather than from Moses and the prophets. They were certainly not universalists. Verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I shall return, and I shall rebuild the tent, or the tabernacle, of David which has fallen, and I shall rebuild its ruins, and I shall set it up again. Some manuscripts have a quote, have those words, I shall return. The NA27 does this. Some Bibles, I should say, have those words, I shall return. Cross-reference is a quote from Jeremiah 12.15 even though the Greek differs significantly with that of the Septuagint. It's much more likely that James had paraphrased from Amos chapter 9 from memory, from verses 14 and 11. The later part of this verse is without doubt quoted by James 
from Amos 9, verses 11 and 12. In order to understand what it is James refers to, we must go to the part of Amos from which he is quoting, and we must read it in context. From Amos chapter 9, from the King James Version. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. The least grain, not one Israelite will be lost. All the sheep will be recovered. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, which say, The evil shall not overtake nor prevent us. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof. This is what James quotes, and it refers to the children of Israel. And I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old. Now, there's a contention over the first part of this next verse that I will explain shortly. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all of the heathen which are called by my name. That should say, all of the nations which are called by my name, saith Yahweh that doeth this. Many of the nations to which Israel was displaced are explicitly listed in Isaiah chapter 66, in verse 19, where Yahweh says in reference to the children of Israel taken into captivity, and I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them under the nations to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud to draw the bow, to Tubal, and Javan, and to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have they seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. Tarshish, of, of course, is Tartessus in Spain. Pol is a reference to Assyria, the name of their king mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 15. Lud, Lud is Lydia in Anatolia. Tubal was a principal of those tribes dwelling near the Black Sea. I'm sorry, Lud were also the Etruscans of northern Italy, and they were descended from the Lydians, according to all of the ancient Greco-Roman classics. Javan. From Javan descended the Ionian Greeks, and Javan descended from Japheth, Genesis chapters 2 and 4. In all of these places, from Tarshish, northern Italy, the Black Sea region, central and western Anatolia, Thrace, and Greece. In all of these places did the tribes called by the Greeks Sake, Scythians, and Chimerians first appear in history shortly after the Assyrian captivities of Israel. Isaiah 66.19 was literally and very clearly fulfilled in the first immigrations of the Chimerians and the Sake into Western Europe and Central Europe.
Even before that time, however, many Israelites had already migrated out of Palestine over the eight centuries prior to those captivities and appear in some of those places and others along the coast of Europe. These, along with the other places to which Israel was deported, such as to Persia and to the cities of the Medes, these are the nations where Israel would be sifted and from which Israel would later be regathered. James's words cannot be applied to anyone but the children of Israel. David was a model king, a type for Christ himself, who ruled over all Israel in his day. Therefore, the tabernacle of David is a reference to David's rule over all the tribes of Israel, which would only once again be realized in Christ from Isaiah 16, verse 5, long after David had died. And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness, a messianic prophecy. James certainly knew exactly what he was doing when he wrote his his only surviving epistle to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, and none of them were Jews. To continue with James's address, verse 17, that those remaining of men, James is quoting Amos 9.12, where the King James Version references the remnant of Edom, right? And those remaining of men seek Yahweh, and all the nations whom have my name labeled upon them, says Yahweh doing these things known from of old. Now some manuscripts have all these things. Here we shall compare Amos 9.12 from both the King James Version and from Brenton Septuagint. And we shall see that the text of Amos, which James quotes, is from the Greek of the Septuagint, and not from any text similar to the Masoretic text upon which the King James Version is based. From the King James, Amos 9.12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the nations which are called by my name, saith Yahweh that doeth this. I'm substituting nations for the word heathen. The word is goy in Hebrew. It primarily means a nation. Sometimes it's translated Gentiles in the King James Version. Yahweh told Rebekah, two goy are in thy womb, two nations are in thy womb. He didn't tell her, two Gentiles are in my womb, or two heathens are in my womb. From the Septuagint version, Brenton's translation, Amos 9.12, that the remnant of man, and this is funny, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, may earnestly seek me, saith Yahweh, who does all these things. That word should be nations. That the remnant of men and all the nations upon whom my name is called 
may seek me earnestly, saith Yahweh, who does all these things. The children of Israel were sent off into captivity, and we were told in the prophets that they would go and seek their God. In modern Hebrew, the words Ida'am and Adam are identical without the Masoretic vowel points. And therefore, the error in the King James appears to have been an error in transcription. Nevertheless, the phrase, those remaining of men, can only refer to those of the children of Israel who survived the captivity. And we see in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 2, the third time I've quoted it in two weeks, Yahweh tells us that the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. They are those remaining of men in Amos 9. Even the King James Version does not dispute the words of James and correctly renders the Greek in this instance where James is clearly referring to certain nations that Yahweh God put his name upon. The phrase, all the nations who have my name labeled upon them, could only have been fulfilled when the white European nations became known as Christendom. And it was a matter of prophecy that only those people who were descended from the Israelites of the Old Testament were to be labeled with his name. Isaiah 43.1 But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he deformed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by my name. Thou art mine, or by thy name. Thou art mine. In reference to their dispersions, he says, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overthrow thee. Overflow thee, I'm sorry. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Isaiah 45. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Isaiah 62. These are all the Israel and the dispersions. For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof is a lamp that burns. And the nations shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory. Thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahweh shall name. That name could only be after the name of Christ, Christian. Speaking of the wealthy, James in his first James in his only epistle in James two seven says, Do they not blaspheme that worthy name by which you are called? Numbers chapter six, verse twenty four. Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Yahweh make his face shine upon thee. This is a blessing to the children of Israel. And be gracious unto thee. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. 
and they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. There you have it. Another witness. His name was Christ, or at least one of the names he was called by. And his ministry on earth was Christ. Concerning verse 18 of this passage, this is a translational note, but it's interesting. The Christogenian New Testament only has the words known from of old. The codices, Alexandrinus, Feze, Lavianus, and the majority text all begin verse 18 with a new sentence. And the Alexandrinus and the Codex Beze have known from of old by the Lord is his work. And the Codex Laudianus and the majority text has known from of old by God are all of his works. The King James Version of this verse has known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And that reading only belongs to some very late manuscripts. If one of these readings were accepted, the word should be attributed to James and not a part of the text which he is quoting, or not perceived to be a part of any Old Testament text which he is quoting. Our reading in the Christogenian New Testament follows the codices, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and the Framie series. In any case, the text at verse 18 seems to be an allusion to Isaiah 45:21, and the NA 27 also notes that. Isaiah 45:21 says, "Tell ye, and bring them near. Yeah, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time?" Have not I, Yahweh, and there is no God beside me, a just God, and a Savior, there is none beside me. Those words also apply only to the children of Israel. And James's words, where he says, known from of old, that's the least that he says. The other manuscripts may add to that, but that meaning does not change. Those words where James says, known from of old, those words demand that Christians go back into the Old Testament scriptures and investigate just what it was that Yahweh God said, which James expected his listeners to have known from of old. And, of course, the closing passage of Isaiah chapter 45. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So that, too, refers only to the children of Israel. Verse 19. On which account I, James is still talking, Judge not to trouble those from among the nations who turn to Yahweh. 
but to enjoin them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from that which is strangled and from blood. For Moses, from generations of old, has those who were proclaiming him in each city in the assembly halls being read each and every Sabbath. After the word for blood in James's list of injunctions, the Codex Beze inserts the words that may be read and whatever they wish not to happen to themselves, not to do to, not to, do to others. A clear Christian principle, however, also clearly an interpolation and another one of many innovations in that codex. The third century papyrus, P45, wants the words rendered and from fornication. However, the words also appear at 1529 and again at Acts 21-25. And the appearance of the phrase in three places is not contested among any of the other Greek manuscripts. Unfortunately, P45 is wanting both of those other passages entirely because even though it, it, it is a, a, a well, well, it is representative of much of the scripture of Acts, P45 is very fragmented. It's a very ancient manuscript, and it only survives in large fragments. P45 and its companion papyrus, P46, holds much of Acts and the Apostles, and, 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 and I'm sorry, the Epistles of the Apostle Paul. And they're extremely old. They date to nearly the turn of the second century AD. But they're not complete, sadly. Regardless of what one wants to believe concerning the Mosaic Law, and we shall discuss that next week when we commence with this chapter of Acts. We'll discuss that at greater length. The Ten Commandments and the admonishments to keep them are an explicit part of the Christian gospel recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In the Gospel of the Apostle John, Christ is recorded as having said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Now Christ, being Yahweh God himself, his commandments are found throughout the Old Testament, throughout the law. However, the Ten Commandments are explicitly mentioned as part of the Christian gospel. Christ goes on to say, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him. And I will manifest myself to him. Christ said those things in John chapter 14, verses 15 and 21. So there should be no doubt that these things were being taught by all of the apostles who preached the gospel. All of the apostles must have been preaching the Ten Commandments, which appear in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke, and must have been giving Christians the injunction to keep them if indeed they've accepted Christ. That should be taken for granted. However, here James adds three injunctions. And to add these three injunctions, he must have felt 
that certain elements of the law were quite important. James must have felt that certain elements of the Mosaic law transcended the covenant. Even Abraham kept Yahweh's laws, statutes, and judgments long before the children of Israel were ever given the law. To abstain from things polluted by idols. This does not merely mean things sacrificed to idols, and it is not even a reference to food, necessarily. It rather admonishes Christians to steer clear of anything where idols were involved. In the ancient world, that meant the games, the theater, the pagan festivals which took place in every city, as well as the temples and the religious rites of the pagans. It meant that Christians had to abstain from most of civic life. Christians today should still be following James's advice. But today people fail to see that their conduct in civic life connects with their religion. In the ancient world, how one conducted himself in the world was a full reflection of his religion. There was no difference between civic and religious life. Today, Christians considered their religious life to, to occur one hour a week, and the rest of the week they give to the world, which is rife with idolatry. Therefore, today, nearly all so-called Christians are truly not Christian at all. They are all pagan. To abstain from things which are strangled and from blood. These are from the Mosaic law concerning things which may be eaten or which may not be eaten. These are from Yahweh's food laws. With this admonishment, Christians should consider that some things are indeed deemed by God as being unfit for us to eat, and that perhaps Christians should therefore also look into and consider keeping the rest of the food laws. James obviously thought that these food laws were important and, they choice, and that they transcended mere obedience to the Mosaic law, and indeed they do. Yahweh our God created the natural world, and he knows what we should eat and what we should not. To abstain from fornication. The reasons for this admission being added here are cultural. Because the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, did not properly translate into the Greek understanding as it appeared in the Greek scriptures. The Hebrew word, which the King James Version translates as adultery in the Old Testament, ostensibly refers to race mixing. And to race mixing it must refer, because there's another commandment that says, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. That is the, the, the idea that we usually connect to adultery today. But the previous commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery certainly refers 
to race mixing. Because out of Ten Commandments, God does not repeat himself. The translators, who in ancient times created the Greek Septuagint from the Hebrew Scriptures, seem to have chosen a word, moikos, which the Greeks did not use in that same manner, even though the word is an adjective which is linguistically related to a Greek verb which means to mix, the word mignumi. But the Greeks used moikos to describe any relationship by a married person with someone other than his or her spouse, regardless of the race of that someone. Similar to the way we use the English word adultery today. So here, James uses a word translated as fornication in the New Testament, even in the King James, which the Greeks used not only to describe prostitution, but which they used to describe any illicit sexual act. And the Greeks indeed considered race mixing to be such an act. They considered race mixing to be a form of fornication. Therefore, Paul used this word, the word is pornace, translated fornication. He used this word to describe a man who had sexual relations with a woman who was married to his own father. He considered it disgraceful for the man to have his father's wife in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And he labeled that man a fornicator. But Paul also used the same word, translated as fornication, even in the King James Version, at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, where he clearly refers to a race-mixing event which took place in ancient Israel, as described in Numbers chapter 25, where it says that Israel began to commit whoredom, not with the idols of Moab, with the daughters of Moab. Therefore, it is without a doubt that in Scripture, fornication refers to race mixing, among other things. And that Christians, according to the Apostle James, and according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Christians should not partake in fornication, in race mixing. This is further supported by the epistle of Jude, where at verse 7, he attests that fornication is the pursuit of different. The Greek word is heteros. It means different. The King James Version has strange. Fornication is the pursuit of different flesh. The last part of the, the last part of James's address here, where he says that for Moses, from generations of old, has those who are proclaiming him in each city in the assembly halls being read each and every Sabbath. That is where we shall pick up our presentation of Acts chapter 15 in the next segment of this series. Yahweh willing, that will be next week. Thank you all for listening. Praise Yahweh, and good night.
I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren. We will be discussing National Socialist Germany once more and the Enabling Act. We are doing this in order to correct the very the very Jewish views that even most Christians have about the National Socialist rise to power and the reasons for the Second World War. Praise Yahweh, and good night.